Scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 18, beginning at verse 30. God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He is a shield for all who look to Him for protection. For who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock? God arms me with strength, and He makes my way perfect. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, enabling me to stand on mountain heights. He trains my hands for battle. He strengthens my arm to draw a bronze bow. You have given me your shield of victory. Your right hand supports me. Your help has made me great. You have made a wide path for my feet to keep them from slipping. This is the word of the Lord. I'm very, very pleased to introduce our own Jim Massengale, who will introduce our very, very special speaker. Good morning. Before I make a few comments about Cam, I would like to introduce my family. <clears throat> my wife, Sandra, raise your arm. <laughs> She's been singing in the choir, church choir at Brookwood since 1983. We've been members here for 34 years. And we are celebrating our 56th wedding anniversary this year. And I can tell you, all you men out there, I'm still being trained. <laughs> so don't give up. You can make it. I would like to introduce my children. Mike, raise your hand, Mike. And his wife, Stacy. Mike is uh, Cam's dad. They live in Greenville, South Carolina. Cam's twin sister, Chandler, was not able to attend today. She's living in Charleston. And my daughter, Kelly, and her husband, Kurt, are from Baton Rouge. Beck, her son, and Mariah, her daughter, couldn't attend today. But uh, Kelly joined this church when we moved here, and she was in the eighth grade. And next to her is my son, Stephen, and John, <laughs> Leah, and Catherine. And they live here in Birmingham in Copper Heights. Catherine is eight years old. She'll be in the third grade at Copper Heights Elementary School. John is, will be in kindergarten at Copper Heights Elementary School. And they both attended daycare here. And John graduated last month. So that was good. And then my daughter Dana and her husband Paul, their son James, and their son Truett, they live in Starkville. So that's my family. We're proud of them. We really appreciate all of you making the trip here today to support Cam. And I know Cam does. So let me tell you a little about Cam. He and Chandler are oldest grandchildren. They are not identical twins, of course. And, uh, but they are uh, special. Cam uh, finished high school four years ago at J.O. Mann in Greenville, South Carolina. He served four years in the Army ROTC there. He was XO when he graduated. And he was selected to place the reef on the tomb of the unknown soldier during his senior year. Sandra and I were fortunate enough to attend that ceremony. 
And our good friends, the Loverns, also were there. They have a daughter in that area, and they were kind enough to make arrangements to be there. It was a very special time for us. Cam attend, just graduated May 6th of this year from the Citadel. He uh, turned 22 the same day. And we were there. The Citadel doesn't just have a couple-hour ceremony. They have a long week of ceremonies. It's a lot of tradition there. Uh, Cam was fortunate enough during his junior year, he tried out for the Summer All Guards. It's an el- silent elite marching group consisting of 60 cadets. And during his junior year, there were about 130, 140 who tried out, and Cam was selected to be part of that group. During his senior year, they, the juniors select the seniors, and the seniors then do the marching during their senior year at the Citadel. He and his group of cadets were fortunate enough to march in the inaugural parade of President Trump. And he and his group also marched in several parades at the Mardi Gras, parades in New Orleans. Sandra and I were fortunate enough to go along with Mike and Stacy and Kelly lives in Baton Rouge and Kurt, and we went over and had a lot of fun watching Cam and his group of cadets march uh, in the parades. And Cam was kind enough to hear me and Mike yelling at him, and he saluted us sort of, did a dip-de-do, so it was a very proud moment for all of us. And he will tell you that marching in all the parades in New Orleans is a tiring experience. So Cam lives currently in Greenville, South Carolina, I should say part-time. He lives part-time in Charleston. His parents, of course, are in Greenville, but his girlfriend is in Charleston. So uh, he happens to have some cadet friends who are graduates, and they have an apartment, and they're kind enough to let him come down quite often. He is pursuing job opportunities as we speak. So uh, we're very pleased today to have Cam with us. Cam, as you probably know, many of this church know you through the events that occurred three years ago, and they supported you in prayer, religiously. They supported me and Sandra during this time. And just know that all of us are continuing to support you daily in our prayers. And today, you're among friends and supporters. So, Cam, I'll turn it over to you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I got to cut half my speech out now. <laughs> but uh, thank you to my grandfather, uh, Papa Jim, and my entire, most of my family for coming here today. I'm uh, truly honored to be here and tell you all the story uh, about three of what happened three years ago and about four or five years of my life uh, and what I've learned in the past in that short amount of time. But I kind of want to preface what happened three years ago with about two years to kind of set it all up what to kind of to make sense of it. So as my uh, grandfather said, I was born and raised in Greenville, South Carolina. And for the longest time, I uh, wanted to serve in the armed forces, specifically in the Army, to uh, fly Apache 864 gunships, the helicopters. And um, being from South Carolina and not wanting to go to a service academy, there's really only truly one place to go to get a uh, 
kind of get prepared for the military mentality, mindset, and uh, the structure. And that's the Citadel, the uh, military college of South Carolina. And uh, about five to eight guys from our high school always matriculate every year. And your freshman year, known as your knob year, is known to be one of your hardest years there. And uh, their, their horror stories, as we like to call them, always kind of float back to us in high school. And uh, I, heard a, I heard a whole bunch, but I still uh, decided to apply. And uh, I got in, thank goodness, because that was the only college I applied to. Um, I didn't want to have any excuse not to go. And so I matriculated in the August of 2013. Uh, that day, I don't remember too much about I was scared out of my mind from hearing all these terrible stories. I remember not saying much. I would walk into the barracks with all my stuff and put it in my room and get dressed and say bye to my parents, and that was it. Uh, the next week uh, is known as fondly to all of us as Hell Week. Um, it's a blur of gray uniforms, early mornings, late nights, yelling, and uh, sweat, and a lot of PT. We weren't allowed to have watches during that week, so we had to base whatever time we thought it was off of what our body was telling us. But the next nine months of my freshman year were a little bit more memorable. Um, the nights still were long. They actually seemed to get a little bit longer. The mornings were still extremely early, and whenever I did get to bed at night, it really just felt like I was just taking a nap. Um, but in throughout, throughout my entire Nav year, freshman year, I kept thinking that this has to be the hardest year of my life. Um, nothing will ever be harder than this. Uh, but I was actually wrong. What that, I finally figured out what that year, your freshman year, is supposed to do is prepare you for your hard years in life. There's never just one. That's just life. I gained a lot of tools that year on how, how, on how to handle hardship, you know, obstacles, but my faith became much stronger throughout that year. Most people don't look to uh, Job for the, uh, the, the, to feel better about their situations. Most people would turn to the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or even the Psalms. But I turned to Job because I thought at the time I could relate my perceived hardship at the Citadel with Job's hardship in life. But I'll get to that book a little bit later and what I learned from it. As I said before, the first year at the Citadel really prepares you for the worst that will come in your life. Uh, and I just didn't expect that, that I would test those skills I learned so soon. Uh, it, just over a month after my, I finished my freshman year and a month after my 19th birthday, I, uh, I experienced what I would uh, experience three years ago. So I started a summer job at a local butcher shop in Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, I did a little bit of everything in the store. Uh, my title was officially the zippy, because that's exactly what I did. I zipped around the store, cleaned a little bit of everything, took out trash. Uh, I would clean out all the stuff that we used throughout the, the day, uh, chop up vegetables and stuff for people to take home. And, uh, but at the end of every day, I would clean out the big machines, the uh, bone saw, the meat slicer, and the meat grinder, to be exact. And about three weeks into my job, actually one day shy, of three weeks into my summer job, I was cleaning out the meat grinder. And when you clean it out, you have to take the entire thing apart. And uh, when I had the, the spiral blade exposed, and I, my hand was on it to push it out of the machine, it cut on. I don't remember too much about that incident other than feeling uh, a blade go immediately in between my uh, ring finger and my middle finger. Um, I def definitely didn't realize at the time how severe the injury was. 
But uh, I remember my coworker running into the freezer where the meat grinder was located. I may or may not have yelled an expli- uh, a very explicit word because of the pain. And as soon as he saw what happened, he almost fainted in the freezer. And this is, this is a big dude, a you know, big kind of burly guy. And I kind of got my composure and yelled at him to go call 911. And he finally did. Um, finally, when the ambulance and the firefighters show up, they decided not to take my hand out of the meat grinder. It was acting similarly to a tourniquet, so I wouldn't bleed out completely. Um, so they, the, luckily, there was a fairly strong firefighter there. He lifted the machine up on the stretcher with me and put it in my lap. We rode to the ambulance with him, with a firefighter there holding it. We had a few conversations. I'm not exactly sure what we had uh, because I was on a lot of morphine. And, but I do remember my one kind of sane moment. Um, I was being wheeled in backwards into the ER, and the, the firefighter's still walking beside me, and I kind of like do a quick turnaround to see like, who's there. And there's just a whole bunch of nurses and doctors, and I kind of like lean over with a, a little smirk on my face, and I said, man. All these people for little old me. He laughed. The nurse didn't. She rolled her eyes. Um, but I remember, like, I was, I was more upset when I got into the, the ER. I, I was wearing my favorite pants that day. And they have to cut all your pants and shirts off. And uh, I was actually more upset that they were taking my pants off than anything. That, and I would never be able to wear them again because they're cut. But uh, as they asked me all these questions, kind of keep me uh, somewhat lucid as they were trying to put me under. And... Uh, as, as soon as they put me under, I was my first surgery, uh, one of many, unfortunately. Originally, I was only supposed to lose my pinky finger and my ring finger on my right hand, which happened to be my dominant hand. My doctor wanted to save as much of my hand as he possibly could. And he truly put in a valiant effort, but just over the next couple of weeks, his plan just kind of fell apart. Um, I got really sick. My blood count started dropping, and... Uh, Nothing, all the, the cleaning out surgeries uh, worked out very well. And to top it all off, an infection set into my arm. And I crashed uh, with septic shock and around, in the middle of the night. Uh, luckily, they saved me. That was really quite the closest I've ever come to dying. Um, and so at that time, the doctors and my parents decided to just go ahead and amputate what was left of my right hand. Uh, which... Looking back, uh, that was probably the best uh, option. If I, they saved my hand, it would have been much more occupational therapy than I had to go through. But uh, I stayed in the hospital a few more days after the amputation to kind of get the post-operation pain under control and to start dealing with uh, phantom limb pain. And phantom limb pain, for those of you who don't know, your, your brain still sends signals down to the nerves to where your amputated limb used to be. And instead of finding where that hand or leg was, it sends those signals back. And instead of interpreting it as um, like confusion, it interprets it as pain. And so I still sometimes feel my right hand uh, uh, when it's not there, kind of like a tingly feeling. Sometimes it's like a burning feeling. Um, and that's kind of different for every amputee. But after I got home from the hospital, I didn't really know who I was anymore. I knew I couldn't fly helicopters for the Army anymore. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what even I needed to do. I felt lost. Uh, I thought this accident was going to change my life forever. Well, it kind of did, but not in the absolutely terribly life-changing way than I thought thought it would be at the time. As I said before, the previous year in my freshman year at the Citadel, I read the book of Job. And one verse always stuck out to me, Job 2.10. And this is um, after Satan attacks his health. 
Uh, and he, he's extremely sick. And his wife asked him, uh, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who, who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. That uh, verse always stuck out to me because it seems like we always thank God for everything that good happens in life. And we never thank him for anything that, that bad that happens or anything bad change that happens. And I wanted to, I, I always took that time and, or after my accident, I, I thank God for the new path that he put me on. I, I always refer to him blessing me with a new path. I, I had no idea what he wanted me to do, but I wanted to trust him. But all I knew after I got back home is that I wanted to get back to school. I wanted to get back to the Citadel. I wanted to see all the friends that I made my freshman year. I wanted to graduate on time. I wanted to get my ring on time and, uh, and just be with all my brothers again. But to get back, I had to go through another obstacle. I had to go through the Citadel's CAT board, which is their medical suitability board to make sure I could still handle the, the strenuous lifestyle that the Citadel had again. Well, I pled my case um, to try to come back on time, and it's me and my parents sitting at one end of a table with like 10 or 15 other people at the other end of the table that you're just talking to constantly. And uh, I remember I, I, this, this would be coming back my first semester sophomore year. But I remember as I'm talking to them, it, it, I kind of got the feeling that they already made up their mind what was going to happen before I even stepped foot on campus that day. They, uh, they decided that I needed to take a semester off to kind of reacclimate. And at the time then, I was heartbroken. I wanted to get back to my friends. I was chosen to, be, um, to hold one of the highest-ranking sophomore positions in my company. I was supposed to come back two weeks early to accept the incoming freshmen or knobs and train them to be successful at the Citadel. I couldn't do that anymore. But while in the hospital, I, I lost a lot of muscle. I lost a lot of... Uh, muscle mass and muscle endurance, and just walking through my neighborhood would tire me out. It would exhaust me. I'd be sweating from walking 100 feet. And so I took that time that they told me to take off to kind of get back into decent physical fitness to be successful back at the Citadel so I wouldn't lag behind everybody else. And eventually I was accepted back to the Citadel my second semester of my sophomore year. And I happened to see, the first person that I happened to see on campus was my battalion TAC officer. Now, TAC stands for Teach, Advise, and Counsel. And these TAC officers are retired or active military duty uh, military personnel. And uh, as soon as I saw him, and he's a, he's a retired Marine Corps, so he's a very blunt man. And he told me that he was not going to take any slack on me, not give me any slack. He's going to make sure I did everything that a cadet was supposed to do. He was going to make sure that I did it. And he kept to that promise. And I remember that... Yeah, he, no slack, whatever, for, for two and a half years. It was terrible. But um, and I, didn't, I never wanted to give him anything to complain about on my performance record. That semester, uh, my second semester, sophomore year, I like to see as my transition semester back into school. I didn't hold rank. I didn't excel academically. And I definitely was still physically behind uh, all my other peers. But come junior year, I really wanted to test what I could do. Um, and I wanted to show myself what I was capable of. At the center of your junior year is probably your most important year. So the first year you get to hold true leadership responsibility. You're in charge of around 16 freshmen, and you're in charge of your, your own classmates in your squad and even seniors as a junior. But there are also a few, actually two, extracurricular activities you could take as a, you could, well, that you can start as a junior if you're a, a, a 
proficient in your academics, physical fitness, and your discipline. You can't have be reprimanded for anything at that, at that to take part in this. And that process is called BVA training. Now that stands for Bond Volunteer Aspirant Training. And this training and selection process is to become and be selected as one of the Summerall Guards. Now this, it's, it's a huge honor to, to be selected as a Summerall Guard because you're held to a much higher standard even as a senior academically, physically, and uh, leadership-wise. And the, the guards, they get to go to all these things around the southeast. Mardi Gras is one of them. Disney World, the Azalea Festival in North Carolina. You get to perform for basketball, football games. And uh, even a, a year, two years ago, they performed at the uh, Atlanta Falcons Stadium for one of the halftimes. And this past year, as my grandfather said, the guards performed in the presidential inauguration parade. This, the, this training process is one of the hardest, if not the hardest, physical and mental uh, challenges on campus. And most of the men who try out for this, they try it just to see where they stand physically and mentally and how much they can take. But when I was still a knob, before my accident, I promised my senior mentor, he's a senior cadet that kind of has a freshman under his wing, that I would, that would go through the training and attempt to be a, be a summer on guard. And... I always try to be a man of my word at school. You kind of learn to do that. And so I decided, and no other amputee has ever attempted this at all, and I decided to become the first amputee to uh, ever start the BVA training. Now this training is three, extra, three months of three-hour days, three times a week of constant physical abuse. You do push-ups, sit-ups, running, sprints. And you're in Chuck Taylor All-Stars that have absolutely no foot support, so you always end up having terrible shin splints while also holding an M14 rifle. Then you'll get an hour to eat after training if you have that much time after you get back in and, and pound water. And uh, then you finally get to your schoolwork, homework around 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. And so junior year was definitely the most taxing when it came to managing time between my, the training, balancing 22 credit hours of classes, and other rank responsibilities. But this training was definitely one of the hardest feats I've ever even attempted. The first day of the process, or the night before, you have to shave your head bald, as that, the picture that was up there earlier, where you're, I was in a sweatshirt and green pants, like a, like a freshman again. You have to shine all the, the brass devices on your uniform, your shoes fully. Even the brass clap, claps that hold the, uh, the pins on your shirts have to be shined. And they can't, no one can see them. But you have random phys, uh, personal appearance inspections so you have to look your best at all time. But the first PT session, uh, PT session we had, all the aspirants were lined up on the field in front of the living barracks, just waiting for the, new, the senior Summerall Guards to come out and put us through some of the worst training we've ever been through. When the Summerall Guard TAC officer, the, the retired military officer who ever received the, the training, jogged out. And I thought he was going to just give us a motivational speech real quick to try to get us off on the first day. But he immediately ran over to where I was, and he pulled me out of line. And I'm thinking, oh, no, he's going to tell me I can't go through training anymore. He's going to tell me that you know, I just need to go back inside after I shaved my head bald, that I just got yelled at all day, I got most of my brass stuff destroyed because it didn't look right, and I'm just going to have to quit before we even start. But all he said to me was, good luck, patted me on the shoulder real fast, and said, don't hurt yourself. And, okay, get back in there. I'm like, I don't know. Okay, I'm locked in now. I can't quit. And then the hardest thing I've ever attempted started. Uh, I did more push-ups 
we had a day called a thousand push-up day, and you do a thousand push-ups in that day. Uh, Sit-ups, sprints, duck walks, bear crawls than I ever thought was physically or mentally possible for any person to uh, do. Then, after you do all that, you run three to five miles in Chuck Taylor All-Stars carrying that M14 rifle, where that rifle just gets heavier and heavier with every step that you take. And then when you rest, you have to hold the rifle above your head. You can't just, you know, hunch over and breathe. They have to make it hard on you even when you're in a resting position. And I just remember every day, about around 140 of us started, 140 junior men started this training. And I remember seeing every day these guys just get up, start walking off the field to where their heads hung low, and they never came back out. And I didn't want to be one of them. I refused to be one of them. One of the best advice that I've ever gotten was on a pendant that my mother gave me uh, after my accident. It has four very simple words on it. One day, or one minute, day, hour. And I took that to heart when I was kind of relearning how to relive life, um, how to do everything again, from tying shoes to eating to riding. And I took that and I used it through the training that we had. And as a result from taking that mindset, I became the first amputee to, to fully complete the BVA training. And then when the selection for the new Summerall Guards came, I became the first amputee Summerall Guard. And finally, senior year came. I was a Summerall Guard. I was feeling high. I was you know, one of the top ranking seniors in my battalion. And uh, I was still taking heavy course loads, um, 22 hours, 18 hours, to make up the time that I lost my first, my first semester sophomore year. And uh, I became the first amputee graduate of the Citadel. I was awarded the, the Association of Military Colleges the day before graduation, uh, which is given to a, a, senior, a graduating senior every year that best exemplifies the finest traditions and the end result of the Citadel's mission. I was extremely honored to receive that from the Commandant of Cadets. But I want to wrap up my story by telling y'all what I have really learned about, not only about myself, but the importance of hardship in life and the importance of change in life, and especially the importance of perseverance and grit through bad change. Change can be good, but change can also be bad. And it's always going to happen throughout your life, no matter what you do. And when it seems like it's bad, and when it seems like it's negative and nothing and nothing's just going your way, it's really easy to give up and just, what I like to say, just roll over and die. It's easy to do that. It's easy, it's, it, dying is easy and living is hard, but it doesn't always have to be. The only limitations that we put on ourselves are the limitations that we, that we put on ourselves. No one else can tell us what we can't do. I had so many people doubt me throughout the entire tra training process. A whole bunch of people doubt that I would ever make it all the way through and everyone doubted that I would even make the guards. But the important part is that you have to put in the time and the effort for what you want to do. And most importantly, you have to trust God. You have to give him your struggles. You have to give him your path. But that doesn't mean that you have to wait around and wait for a miracle to happen. God will give you the tools. You just have to pick them up and use them. And I truly appreciate the time that you all have given me to speak. I truly appreciate my family for coming. And I am truly blessed that this church is prayed for me for the past three years after my accident, and I'm truly honored to be here. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, 
gosh, I enjoyed that better than any of them. I mean, talk about someone who, uh, it's just a testimony of strength and, and trusting in God and God's protection, and uh, that's hard to follow. The good news is I'm brief, and I know you were worried about that, but it's funny when uh, Cameron and I were contacting each other, uh, I asked him, you know, is there a certain biblical text you'd like to have? And I'd already chosen uh, Psalm 18, and he said, well, there's a passage in Job that I like, and I also like Psalm 18, and you said that. And I, I was like, wow, we were texting back and forth. I said, wow, that's exactly what I had already picked and all that. And uh, immediately he shot back, he just said, great minds. So uh, I doubt I have the endurance and perseverance you have, but at least we got the same mind there, Cameron. Appreciate that. But again, I want to talk just very briefly about this passage in Psalm 18, which speaks to God's sovereignty, but especially it speaks to God's strength and shield. Let me read just a portion of it, beginning with verses 1 and 2. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. goes on to say, he is a shield for all who look to him for protection. God arms me with strength, and he makes my way perfect. He trains my hands for battle. He strengthens my arm to draw, to draw a bronze bow. You have given me your shield of victory. I just want to talk very briefly about uh, God being our strength and shield, and here's someone who incarnates that in his own life. But the word there for strength in the Hebrew really talks about a most available strength, a strength that is always there for you, always walking with you. And it's really talking about God walking with you and giving you strength whenever you turn to him. It reminds you of the New Testament word for Holy Spirit, paraclete, which means one who walks beside you and never gives up on you and is always available for you and strengthening you no matter what intense situation you might be going through. Many of you have heard of the Tuskegee Airmen who were uh, from the U.S. Army uh, Air Corps, uh, not far from here. Uh, an amazing group of people. I think we've got one more picture of them. Does anybody know, there was a movie about them <clears throat> a few years ago, what their nickname was? Anybody know? Yeah, who, who got that? Raise your hand. The Red Tails. Who got that? Very good. Is that Corley? Even you got it there? You got it? No, well done. That's great. They were called the Red Tails because uh, they painted uh, the tails of their planes red. And they became the first African-American military aviators in the U.S. Armed Forces during World War II. Here are some who are still uh, alive today uh, who are being honored in Washington. How did they get to be well-known? How did they become legend? Well, it's interesting. There was an increasing number of U.S. bombers that were being shot down in World War II. And what would happen would be that the fighters that were escorting them whenever they were engaged in an intense battle, uh, the fighters would veer off and engage in battle, but they would just leave the bombers there completely vulnerable. But then again, if you engaged in battle, you were less vulnerable if you were in the fighter plane. Well, the Tuskegee Airmen took a totally different strategy, and they, their basic thing was never leave the bombers. Stay with them no matter what. No matter what is going on around you, stay the course, defend your charge, and that is for the bombers. And, and regardless of what was happening around them, they stayed by them. As a result of that, there were only 25 bombers that were lost out of the hundreds that the uh, Tuskegee Airmen defended. And that's how they became legend, and it's, it's wonderful. There's a wonderful movie called Red Tails that George Lucas produced a few years ago, and there's a wonderful scene where they would gather on the airstrip of some European uh, uh, air 
air place, airport, whatever it might be, and, and their, their motto was this, the last plane, the last bullet, the last man, the last minute we fight. And, and, and that really reflects, in a way, uh, God's strength for us. It is there for us to the last minute. It's always there. It's available for us. As Joshua said, he will never uh, leave nor forsake us. I think of Nehemiah when he was uh, building the wall with the people of Israel, when he would say, our God is here, his strength is present, our God will fight for us. So again, God is our strength, and secondly, he is our shield. I think of Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength. You could say he is our shield and strength as well. It's a shield of protection that Psalm 18 is talking about, and I can't help but Think immediately about Paul using the military imagery of putting on the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Fascinating passage where he says this, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and take up the shield of faith. And in the Greek, breastplate and shield are very, very similar words. The shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Thoraka is the word there for breastplate. It can be translated body armor. It's almost like what we would call a bulletproof vest, and it was the most significant part of body armor because it, it really protected your most vital organs. And so you needed that. But what's interesting is it's called the breastplate of righteousness. Now, it's not the righteousness that's imputed upon a person at the point of salvation when they confess Christ as Lord. It's, it's really the breastplate of righteousness that you defend, that you stand up for. That's why it says uh, put it on as you get ready for action. It's not something passive. You put it on and go out and act on that righteousness, even if it puts you at a point of risk. Uh, same understanding with the word there for shield. And, and when I think of the breastplate of righteousness, I'm going to do something I've never done before and close with the story I told just last week, but I thought this is exactly what the guy was saying. Uh, last week I talked about Dan Meyer, who's a uh, pastor uh, who struggled with anxiety and fears all of his life because of things that happened to him as a child. And then in 1986, he invited this guest missionary to speak, and he, he was a missionary in Beirut. And this was in 1986. In the mid-'80s, Beirut, which had been called the Paris of the Middle East because of how beautiful and pristine it was, it had been reduced to a devastated wasteland because of all the civil war that was going on over there. Just a terrible, terrible place to be. But this missionary stood up to speak, Gave a marvelous testimony like the one we heard this morning. And, and then, uh, you know, uh, Dan thanked him for coming there to, to speak. And he said, now, wait, what are your plans now? What are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm going home. He said, oh, where do you live? Are you, do you live around here? He said, no, I'm going back home. I'm going home, back home to Beirut. And he, he, he couldn't believe it. He thought, no, you need to be furloughing. You don't need to go back into that devastated war zone. He said, you're going back? And the missionary said, yeah. He said, well, is it safe to go back there? And let me just quote Dan Meyer, the pastor. He said, the missionary looked at me with a penetrating gaze, paused, and then while tapping his breastbone, he said, it is safe in here. It is safe in here. Why? He had the breastplate of righteousness. He had this power of the Spirit within and trusted that and knew that no matter what, no matter what, God is there and with him and at his side, no matter what would come. You and I have that breastplate and shield of righteousness and of faith. And it's when we have Christ that we have reason to give thanks for those. I'd like for us to enter into a moment of meditation and prayer. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes. 
And I want you, first of all, to, to give thanks for uh, people who have sacrificed that you could have freedom in your own life. Um, it, it, it could definitely be people who have served in the armed forces. It could be someone who just gave you some insight and, and gave you some great advice, uh, like what Cameron was saying. Just, just someone who set you free to be more of who you were called to be, someone who set you free from some difficulty. It could be people who have set you free to be able to be in here and praying and worshiping right here and now because of the freedoms that we have. Why don't you just take a moment and give thanks for anyone who comes to mind. And then secondly, I would like for you to give thanks to Christ who really became our strength and shield and, and took upon our own sin and by the sacrifice of his own life, he is now not only our Savior, but indeed our strength and shield. Give thanks for the ultimate sacrifice that he offered for you. Hear our prayers of thanksgiving, O God, celebrating the fact that because of you and your Son, by his sacrifice, we are given freedom, newness of life, indeed eternal life. For all this, we are so grateful. Thank you for all of the freedoms you've given us. In your name we pray. Amen.